Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Elixir Mix episode. This week on our panel, we have Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. Josh Adams. Well, hello there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Kate Travers. Kate, do you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. Great to be here. Now, you work for Flatiron School. I've actually been to the New York uh, campus. Um, do you want to just uh, give us a little bit more of an introduction than that? Who you are, yeah. where you kind of came into this from and all that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm currently a software engineer on the Flatiron School engineering team. Uh, in addition to that, I'm an alumni of the program. So I came to Flatiron first as a student, graduated back in uh, May of 2015, and actually joined the engineering team right after graduating from the program. So we have an uh, apprentice program on the team entered in as an apprentice and they haven't been able to get rid of me yet. So <laughs> nice. been there ever since almost, uh, yeah, a little over three years now. Uh, absolutely love it here. So yeah. And, uh, our team is, uh, has a number of Elixir projects in the works. So most of my experience has been hands-on with Elixir apps in production. I feel like that's been, it's been super fun. It's been super valuable. I've been working on that for, I think the first one we started about, a little over a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, a little over a year's worth of Elixir experience. Awesome. Yeah. Um, we used to have a Flatiron alum on Ruby Rogues, uh, Saranya Bark. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yep. She's, yeah. she's out doing her own podcast thing, which is awesome. No, nah, it's amazing. She's, uh, yeah, she's, yeah, phenomenal. One of her best alums. Yeah. And just awesome in general. Very cool. So last time I looked into Flatiron, it was kind of a focus mostly on Ruby and JavaScript. Has, has that changed along with your development practices or is this something else? So as far as the curriculum goes for the folks, uh, for the students in the program, we are still teaching. It's still very much, you know, the, the Rails focus for the back end and JavaScript. Uh, mostly, you know, we're teaching React on the front end these days. but where times may or may not be a change in. So we, we've been talking to the curriculum team, you know, about, you know, what's, what's, what do you guys think about functional curriculum and Elixir in particular? I know we have, we have a number of folks on the team. Our, uh, actually, our lead engineer in particular is super motivated about introducing some Elixir curriculum. I think that our engineering team will actually be the first to kind of dog food it if we get mm-hmm. that going. It's, it's certainly something that I imagine um, if we introduce it, we'll kind of uh, do that internally, produce and consume it internally first. But then, yeah, it'd be absolutely fantastic to get that out as a, you know, a free intro course for the public. Awesome. That, that just sounds really interesting. And, and I'd love to start seeing some of, the, some of the boot camps start picking up Elixir. Because I think 
I think we're going to eventually see it take a much wider role in the development community. And I think there's, I think there's a lot of benefits to it. It's something we've, we've discussed on the team, you know, internally is, you know, everybody's kind of been, you know, we've sort of been training, trying to level ourselves up on the job. Um, and a lot of the folks on the team, um, actually on our engineering team are also graduates of the, of the Flatiron mm-hmm. program or some other boot camps. And as we pick up new languages and specifically uh, functional languages, I'd say the majority of us come from, you know, an object oriented background, mostly Rubyists. But it's something we've been thinking about, you know, what if what if we had learned, what if we had started with functional and what's what's kind of the upside of that? Yeah, it makes sense. Well, and a lot of the concepts in many of the front end frameworks are also at least somewhat functional. You see some reactive, some functional, some mix, you know, and then they they do have side effects sometimes. So, but but at the same time, it's it's really interesting just to see how it all comes together. And mm. there are definite benefits to that. Yeah, it's also interesting. I mean, because we we think about this as you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff we build is to support, you know, we're supporting the the delivery of curriculum and how we make that easier. And so part of what we'll see if we're doing like user research or any of those sessions, you know, a lot of folks when they're starting out, when they're writing Ruby, for example, like in our courses, you actually kind of see them when you start out, you're almost writing in a functional style, right? Like some of the first code mm-hmm. you write, it's very, you know, you're essentially just writing little, you know, little uh CLI scripts or something like that. You're thinking in a very functional sort of manner. And part of what we're doing currently in the curriculum is kind of training people to think, you know, to, to kind of get rid of that, to move away from that script rates approach and think more in terms of objects. But it's funny because the functional stuff, it, it almost seems like it's kind of comes more natural to, to a lot of our students. So I, I think that's an interesting topic just because uh, <laughs> I would love to see more. Uh, I don't know, research or just experience anecdotal even just of people starting with functional programming because a lot of the difficulty of teaching someone uh, that I've experienced of teaching someone Elixir is that they're having to unlearn a lot of these other concepts about, oh, I have an object. An object has data and it has functions and those are bound together into an instance. And that's what's being passed around. And like, well, in functional, it's like you have data and you have functions and they are two completely separate things. And you know, it just it impacts the way you think about the whole, the whole problem space. And so it's like, yes, if, you, if we can start teaching people with functional, then I think that might be, they might not have to go through that unlearning process. It might be a faster process. Mark's been watching me this week. So I started an Elixir project, a Phoenix project about a week <laughs> ago. And I was playing with it yesterday. And yeah, I keep running into things and I'm like, what is going on here? And then, yeah, it's, oh, I got to think about this a little different. Yep. Yep. I know. I know that feeling. And it's, it's actually where it's kind of the same thing with a lot of folks at our team. We've, we've spun up. So we, we have one core Elixir product that we've been working on. That's, that's kind of our oldest, oldest, biggest, you know, most mature. And that's been, we've been iterating on that for, you know, at least, you know, probably a year or so. We've spun up a couple smaller ones, which, you know, they're greenfield projects for the most part. But those are the projects that we have some folks on the team. That's the first Elixir that we're writing. We're seeing a lot of the same, a lot of the same stuff as part of our code reviews. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just really interesting. I mean, because yeah, it, it makes total sense, you know, after a year, yeah, you know, if you've been writing Ruby on the job every day, all day, uh, of course, you're going to kind of write this stuff in an object-oriented sort of way. So yeah, anyway, we're, we're, our, our team is right there with you. We're feeling the exact same, 
kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I think we invited you on to talk about pattern matching, but I do want to talk about adoption for a bit and then we can kind of come back around to that. Yeah, sure. So pattern matching, I think once you get it, it's it's a relatively simple thing to talk through. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be more interested in the adoption end of things. So, you know, as as Flatiron has started to make this transition, you know, before they even change any of the curriculum, it sounds like they haven't yet, or you folks haven't yet. But uh, where are you seeing the, you know, first of all, just, and, and you have this in the notes that you gave us for prep as well. Where, where do you see that it's easy to get buy-in and where it's hard to get buy-in? Like how, how did Elixir come into Flatiron, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, so yeah, there's, there's a couple things that contributed to, uh, to us picking this up because, yeah, as, as we mentioned, it's, it's not part of the school's curriculum. Uh, the majority of the folks on our team, we're Ruby on Rails. We've been writing that for years. That's what we have the most depth of experience in. Uh, however, we, in terms of you know, how, how we started using Elixir, I'd say the main, kind of the main impetus for this was our, our technical lead, adores he he is a full-on advocate for elixir he's super loud uh eloquent voice you know advocating for it steven nunez and so he was the one that first you know kind of identified that elixir might solve some of the problems that we haven't been able to solve using different technology and for us i mean in terms of we're always i'd say that our you know our team is not particularly prone to um we're not just going to go after whatever the the latest hotness is or anything like that uh, when we adopt new tech, it's, it's always kind of a, uh, well-reasoned and well-supported kind of decision. It's not something we kind of leap blindly into, you know, probably like most, most teams, but for us, we just had, I'd, I'd say the main thing. So in addition to our, our lead, just being completely over the moon about Elixir. So he was looking for opportunities, but the perfect opportunity kind of came up. One of the hardest problems that our team has had to solve is the platform that we work on, the one that students use every day, uh, it's just, it's called LearnCo. So I'll, I'll refer to LearnCo a whole bunch now, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so, so you're, you're bringing folks on who have never used their computer as a coding machine before ever. They're coming in, it's a Netflix machine. That's about it. So getting folks in a state where they can, they're prepared to write code in a very real, you know, sort of way using as close to an experience as, you know, like folks, you know, like developers would use on the job, that's not easy. I mean, think, think about the first time you had to set up a local environment and get that thing ready to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean like that, that's the hardest part of, you know, like uh, anytime you, you know, kind of onboard into a new tech stack, like, like you're, you're probably going to spend a day setting up your machine, no matter what your experience level is. So I bet you're, you're kind of a lot of people's first uh, exposure to even the command line, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. And like seeing, seeing folks when they, yeah, once they dive in there, um, it can be very, it can be really intimidating. Yeah. Any oh, error yeah. message that, I mean, it's, it's wild. We've, we've had, um, I mean, it's really understandable, but we, we've had folks where it's, they get any error message whatsoever, even like if they just type in some command and it's like bash command not found. They're terrified. They think that they have broken their laptop. <laughs> And like, you know, those, but if you've never, if you've never been in there yeah. before and if you've never seen those kind of error messages, you know, yeah, it's real, it's, yeah, it's terrifying. So, and that's not the exciting part of learning how to code. You know, if you want to get somebody really hyped and really into it and they get them to kind of stick with it, 
you kind of need to get them into the fun parts and the magic part as quickly as you can. So setting with the machine, that's a slog. That is, that used to be for us, you know, that, that was kind of day one of the course. Everyone would come in, they'd be sitting in the classroom, we'd have our instructors, and they would go around and very manually run through steps to help people set up their local environment to become a Ruby machine. And it literally, we lost an entire day of the course doing that. So folks were like, yeah, we, <laughs> we got to do better. We got to automate this somehow. And so the solution that, that ended up, that we arrived on after lots and lots and lots of iterations um, was this first Elixir project that we did. And so the ultimate product, you know, the folks are, that folks are seeing in the, in the browser is what looks like, it looks like a text editor with a console, you know, at the bottom, you know, like if you use like VS Code or Atom mm -hmm. with the console pulled up, that's what it looks like. That's what it's modeled after. Um, and so that's what students see. And when they interact with it, it's, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're running commands uh, on a console as if they're getting executed on your local machine. They're, spoiler, they're not. <laughs> and then same, same thing with the text editor, you know, like you're, uh, mm -hmm. you're interacting with it the same way you would any other thing. But what it actually is, it's an Elixir backend, just pure, pure Elixir. And what it's managing is it's spinning up uh, Dockerized, you know, these, these Dockerized environments. Oh, so, nice. Exactly. With, with everything that they need, uh, everything a student needs, you know, to get started on these, uh, on, on any kind of, you know, all our, all our lessons are just repos on GitHub, you know, so like any, mm -hmm. you know, it's just kind of preloaded Ruby code that they have to fill out. It's all test driven, you know, so the tests are in there, like the blank, you know, like uh, file that they have to fill in is there. And so what they see is they, they see this, you know, Elixir backed kind of product that we call it the Learn ID. That's what spins up in their browser. And so when they're interacting with it, they think they're interacting with their local machine. What they're actually doing though is that Elixir backend is maintaining these, these Dockerized environments. That's where the code is getting executed. Um, every command they type in is going over WebSockets. That's how it's getting fed to the, to the backend. It gets executed, and then they, the feedback comes back over the websockets, and everything updates on the front end. Yeah, that would be hard to do with Ruby. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that is that is super awesome. Right. I mean, just think about the latency if we weren't mm -hmm. if we weren't using a language like like Elixir. Yeah. Um, you have to have websockets for that. Totally, and like, and it's 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 amazing. You know, like we mm -hmm. we tried to do it without Elixir in the past, and as you can imagine, you know, if the container blows up. It's kind of game over. We needed something that would, you know, kind of manage that, you know, be super fault tolerant, spin, you know, we have all the supervisors in place. Anything goes wrong, just spins a, you know, a fresh, totally non-borked container back up for the student. And right. then they, they don't notice an interruption. Um, yeah, anyway, just provide a lot of really, really kind of uh, out-of-the-box solutions for, for the problems that we were trying to manage. Very cool. Now, is, is LearnCo something that people can go check out outside of Flatiron School? Yep, they sure can. So we, we, have, uh, we have a whole bunch of free courses. Uh, all, all of the intro courses, uh, we have an intro to bootcamp prep that'll get you started right away with learning Git, you know, Git commands, interacting with GitHub, Ruby, JavaScript, and then there's even some interview prep thrown in at the end. We nice. have, if you're not interested in that full package, you know, we got intro to Ruby, intro to JavaScript, and hopefully one day, intro to Elixir. <laughs> Should be really nice, but yeah, it's all test driven. You can you can play around with the uh, the IDE once you get into the lab section. So, 
So as you're bringing new people on to Elixir and working on some of these um, applications, how do you transition them from Ruby or whatever their background is to Elixir? I mean, you just throw them in the deep end and ask questions or do you have another way of approaching that stuff? Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. So, so this is in terms of like how we're onboarding uh, our engineers, you know, uh-huh. have never, never worked with it. Sure. So yeah, so there's, in addition to, um, you know, folks are interested, we'll, we'll put them on an Elixir project. We have uh, a couple of those kind of spun up now, but it's also something our team tries to prioritize in terms of even, even just, even just our team processes. So for example, like uh if you're on, uh, one thing we did, especially when we were spinning up this big one, is typically our team kind of does pair programming when, when necessary. You know, we're, we're not like Pivotal where it's, you know, all you do is pair. It's usually just kind of an option. But, you know, introducing, when we were building this, this uh, when we were building the IDE, we actually moved from kind of that as-needed pair programming to like 100% pair programming model, where we would kind of rotate newer folks through with our Elixir experts. So you would spend, you know, like two or three days just pairing, you know, on a particular piece, you know, the feature with an expert. And so that's one way that we were kind of helping people learn on the job, which is really, really valuable. Uh, also really good for just knowledge sharing, you know, in general across that code base. The other thing, a couple different things, in, a, in addition to that, we've, we have a weekly technical book club. Mm-hmm. So we've just been diving through like all of the great Elixir books that are out there right now. I think the first one we read was, you know, Dave, Dave Thomas's uh, programming right. Elixir. That was a really fun one. We're working through the latest version of the programming Phoenix book mm-hmm. right now, which has really been fantastic. It was funny. A bunch of us, like half of us probably read the first version back when, you know, we still had models. <laughs> so it's, it's been valuable to kind of go actually go back through and reread, you know, and get a better handle on, you know, context and, all the, all the new fun stuff. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been a really, uh, our managers are amazed. It's what they, they said it's one of the longest running technical book clubs that they've ever seen. Oh, really? I mean, they, you know, it's book clubs, they fall apart, right? Like uh-huh. <laughs> it's really easy to drop off or for whatever reason, you know, ours is still, still going strong after a couple of years. That's, that's great. I have definitely created the failed ones. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's way more the norm. I don't think anybody expected these, these to keep going, but yeah, they're really fun. I think one of the things that helps is actually, and this might eventually turn into proper curriculum, but a lot of what folks do every week, instead of just kind of discussing whatever you know chapter we try to read, uh, folks will actually write little workshop-based things, um, and we'll do a little workshop type type exercises together as part of book club, um, you know, related to whatever the chapter was, but. Right. And do you guys take turns with who's kind of preparing that little workshop-y kind of, I don't know, uh, worksheets or whatever? Yeah, totally. So, so that's something we kind of rotate through. So everybody's, you know, got a different lead each week and it's, it's not, you know, everybody on the team has, is going to participate, is going to be like the lead at, at one point. That's great. It's really helpful for folks of all experience levels. So, yeah, and I, I, I'll, I can th- I'll throw out one other thing that I think is maybe a little different about our team. We, we've got a bunch of people who just love to blog. Like, they, they love writing technical blog posts. So we've, uh, if, you, if you check it out, we have a whole bunch, like, as people are kind of learning Elixir, they're, they're writing posts. You know, it's, granted, it's a lot of, you know, kind of stuff that you uh, 
uh, will encounter at the beginner beginning of your Elixir journey. But it's you know it's still very helpful. So we're we're seeing we have you know posts on like you know uh, meta programming. Uh, actually, this is you know my my talk with uh, pattern matching actually came out of that. So and are these like personal blogs or are these blogs that are like on the Flatiron School blog? Yeah, it's on it's on our engineering blog, um, which is just uh, very confusingly flatironlabs.com. Cool. <laughs> very cool. So uh, since you so graciously uh, transitioned us to the talk about pattern matching, um, yeah. So w- where did that just came out of you writing blog posts? That was yeah. That was the, that was kind of the first iteration on it. Um, our team lead again, uh, Stephen, suggested uh, a really nice way to kind of cement the things that you're learning. You know, he's he, he's pretty good at that kind of thing. You know, just put that idea in your head. He's like, yeah, it'd be really good. Probably like uh, you know, write something about pattern matching. I'm like, oh yeah, it's a great idea, Stephen. So uh, <laughs> that was the the kind of first version of it was was a post. Um, which was, you know, fairly uh, straightforward to kind of kind of turn that into a into a conference talk, uh, and actually a lot more fun to deliver as a talk. Nice, yeah. I read through the the blog post on uh, Flatiron Labs. Um, I didn't get a chance to watch the talk, but uh, I, I will tell you that one thing that I found that was interesting was um, looking at this. And now that I've been playing with Elixir for a little bit, you know, pattern matching it kind of makes sense to me. But originally, when I looked at it, I'm like this is screwy stuff because it's not assignment, right? The equal sign. It's, it's such a head trip. Like, yeah, yeah just that very first thing, like wrapping your, wrapping your head around it. Yeah. Yep. And, and then it's like, oh, I can do multiple assignment with this. And then it was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Well, except, right. You're like, it's not multiple. No, it's not. Yeah. Right. You're yeah, like my... multiple, multiple binding. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. My introduction to pattern matching was uh, via Erlang. The um, I forget his name right now, but the guy that started DN Simple was showing off his um, his DNS parser. And so, like mm-hmm. my first, Eden? oh, yes. nice. And so, like my first introduction to pattern matching really was seeing a DNS parser, which is pretty freaking great. Like it was, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was eye opening. So, and that's that's such a useful, you know, like first introduction to it, right? It's not like some, you know, it's not like just the academic introduction to like, oh, X equals one, one equals X. That's like real world. You see the utility and the awesomeness of it like right away. Yeah, when I'm when I'm showing pattern matching to people, I always walk through building like a TCP parser or something nice. because of that, mm-hmm. because it really does show how awesome it is. Yeah, it's awesome. That's a really, yeah, that's a really, really good example. But I agree. Like when uh, first learning Elixir, it's like pattern matching did become... This uh, I don't know. It like became like a superpower, and and it was like, man, I, I it became like my first real love of the language. Like before concurrency, before supervisors or any of the other stuff. It's like pattern matching. It's like that solved a lot of pain that I would ever otherwise have to do. Like imagining like uh, say you've got like a large, deeply nested Ruby hash or a JavaScript object, right? It's this deeply nested thing. The normal way we work with that is we kind of iteratively like procedurally go through and poke it and say do you have this key all right well if you do no, do you have that key and like is it does it have this value and then you're kind of like you're poking this big object to try and figure out what shape it is and but you're blind otherwise and with pattern matching it's like you're it's declarative you're just saying the thing i'm looking for has this shape 
It might have some other stuff, might be a different color. I don't care about that. Like these are the, the aspects of this shape that I care about. And it matches or it doesn't. And it, it, if it matches, it just comes into my function body. And I, I now have an object or a, or a block of data that matches that shape. And it's like, it just, it was a mental flip, but it was like, wow, I get it. And this is like, it felt like a superpower really. And, and so I really liked your, your MPEX talk where you, you gave a nice intro. Like it was, a, it was an unconventional intro to pattern matching. Do you, would you like to like just kind of share how you introduced that? I think it'd be helpful for the audience. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so yeah, so so I took a I took a different analogy than um, I, I totally relate to like the feeling of like holy crap, this is a you know this is a superpower. Yeah, but you what, don't have to write regexes eight times to get it right. <laughs> yeah, never, never again. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Oh, regex! Uh, everybody loves it. Um, it's like number one regex, number two CSS. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> It's, in terms of like the, I think the analogy that really that really clicked for me when I uh, was thinking about like exactly what it was about pattern matching, where it's like, why why was this a thing? Uh, of all the stuff that you know that that you see when you start writing Elixir, this was the one where I was like, oh, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm on board now. And the closest thing that I that I could kind of relate it to was um, kind of like it's like learning uh, like a musical instrument. Which I think most folks have probably tried. Uh, myself personally, you know, like it, it was, uh, it's kind of like learning to play guitar. And I, I think the way, the think of way I, I kind of phrase the analogy is like, you know, when you, you know, when you start learning something like guitar, uh, you're, you're <laughs> it's always because you have these these lofty aspirations, you have these high ambitions, you know, of of, of being like that superstar that that utter rock star. Like nobody's learning guitar just because they want to like plink around a little bit. You're learning to be a rock star. Like you want to be David Bowie, which is funny because when you first start, you could not be farther away from, from that goal. And so with, you know, if, if, if that's what you're looking towards and the state that you're currently in at the beginning where you're just kind of like learning chords and you're plinking stuff out it is so easy to just kind of think to yourself like, Oh my God, I'm terrible. I suck. Uh, and you get super discouraged and you fall off and then that's it. And you never keep going. So the trick, like the thing, you know, to to kind of prevent you from falling off like that is you, is you need something that kind of encourages you. You need that hook, you know, that thing that keeps you, keeps you going. And for me, it's like, you just need to learn that one really, really sick riff. And once you have that down, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see it now. I can see my rock star beginnings. And sort of the same with the programming language. You need something to hook you. And so when it came to Elixir, you know, like I, I knew that, you know, maybe one day I'll be that amazing Elixir rock star. But right now, not so much. <laughs> and the thing that kept me in it was pattern matching. That was that super sick rip where I'm like, oh, here we go. Now I've got it. And that was all I needed to just kind of, yeah, keep diving deeper and deeper into the language. And I think that's, that's the kind of thing a lot of people, you know, I, I uh, have a lot of interaction with people who are very new to the language, just exploring it even. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is just, you know, you have that excitement about something. This is new. I can see a lot of potential here. And they do, they deal with uh, the frustration of like getting their build environment set up, right? Yeah, or exactly. Just trying to understand like, the binding operator, like, you know, the match operator, 
right? Just like, this is really different. And, and, and so like, I do think, I think you kind of nailed it there that if people can latch onto something fairly quickly where they feel like, wow, I really do have a lot of ability here that I don't have with other tools, then it, it gives them that reason to keep coming back and learn a little bit more and a little bit more. So yeah, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so nice too, because I mean, it really is one of those things. It's, it's so ubiquitous across the language that once you have it down, you have that basis for, for just kind of taking off from there. You're, you're totally set up for success. Yeah. It's, it's also nice that it's not just some random thing. It's a thing that you will use constantly and for more interesting things. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's valuable. Right. Right off the bat. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood, and I've been asked more times than I can count, how do I stay current? There's a lot to this question, and I'm working on a solution, code badges. That's right. You heard me right. Basically, the idea is, is that you come and do a code badge, and that gets you an introduction to a topic. Then you can decide if you want to pursue it further. But while working on the badge, you gain enough proficiency to be able to pick it up again if you need. A lot of technology comes through on the bleeding edge, and not all of it sticks, but the principles do. So doing badges on the technologies that will get you ahead will provide you with experience needed to stay competitive. Plus, it offers social proof that you know something about the topic. The project is on Kickstarter right now. You can support it and get on the launch list at codebadge.org. So what was the most surprising thing that you learned about pattern matching building this talk? Sure. So yeah, so, so at least for me, and actually uh, I've, I've gotten some feedback that this was uh, kind of a cool new thing for, for some other folks too, uh, was kind of the, uh, just, just all the different things you can do with guard clauses. So I think it might be one of the... Um, it was certainly one of the, the, you know, aspects of pattern matching, like one of those little tools that I certainly was, wasn't using enough. I, I use them all over the, all over the place now, um, probably to an obnoxious extent, but yeah, they're super, super handy. And taking those a bit further custom guard clauses, that's something I absolutely had never looked into using. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of fun to know that those, those are available too. Do you want to just explain the concept real quick? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, so, so Elixir provides, I mean, there's a, there's a number of guards that's, uh, that are available to you that you can use as part of just that, that the beginning of your, your function declaration, you know, like, uh, when you're writing something out, you can, can use a little guard clause, you know, like when is, is nil, you know, for one of the arguments or something like that. Um, they do kind of have a, a limited number of those available. It's just, it's purely limited to, uh, stuff that, uh, has been optimized, you know, since, as you're evaluating, um, every part of that function clause set, including the guard, needs to be evaluated before it kind of moves on. Um, so we've kind of have this uh, uh, small permitted list of guard clauses that you can use. Uh, but the thing is, is you can use as many of those in combination as you want. So the custom guard clauses are something that you can write. So you can do a def guard. Um, where you can combine any number of those permitted expressions into kind of a nice, clean, short, uh, custom one that you can kind of throw in there whenever you need to use it. So, and those were handy. That was, that was something I'd never really seen used before. So not something you use all the time, but it's nice to know that it's, it's there if you need to reach for it. Yeah. I looked at your talk or at your blog post and read through that. And I was like, I didn't know you could do that. That's really handy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, uh, yeah, it's, uh, they're nice when you need them. So it's, I'd, I'd say, especially, I, I think one of the, the biggest things there, I mean, if only if, 
if the benefit only comes from legibility, you know, or you're writing something that is well beyond like that 80 character, you know, kind of, kind of gutter, um, these will save you. So. Yeah. So, uh, recently did an authorization layer for GraphQL where we use, uh, extensively not custom guard clauses, but guard clauses and pattern matching, right. To sort of route the things through to the authorization request. And it's, um, Super cool, and I think it would be a nasty, ugly mess if I were not in Elixir. Yeah, absolutely. We've been one of the projects I'm currently on. We're we're doing a lot of uh, we're interacting with um, uh, Salesforce API, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much exclusively. And uh, yeah, pattern matching has uh, made that infinitely, <laughs> infinitely less stressful than than usual. Yeah, I hadn't I, even thought about that use case. But yeah, I mean, you get wacky stuff back from different APIs and just being able to say, is it what I'm looking for or not? And then if it is in the same line, basically, it's okay, it's going to put it all how I need it so that I can just manipulate it. Yes, uh, I, I wrote it some code when I was my first real Elixir project that like went to production. Uh, I was integrating with an external service um, that was returning like financial data and and they returning these like json objects that are just really big and nasty and like you have to dig way down here in this corner of it to find out if it has a status code of 1001 that means this and way over in this other corner it's like means this and and so when i started doing this um i was like all right this is this is for pattern matching went for the win and as i started doing this i i i make an attempt at it I was like, no, this still doesn't feel right. And I'd go back and look at docs and example code. And then I'd make another attempt at rewriting it. And then it's, uh, it still doesn't quite feel elixir yet enough yet. And then I'd kind of keep going back at it. And then I, what I ended up on was like this very clean, you know, like it might have even been like five to eight different pattern matching functions that like code all of these different responses. But I felt like I got it. And I, I was so proud of this. I have saved that text as like something I show. It's like a showcase thing, even though it could be improved upon further. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like, it's okay to have iterations of this, right? And like, you're looking at it, you're like, all right, I'm, I'm doing my pattern matching. And then, then you learn about guard clauses and like, oh, well, that will actually help over here. And I can stick that. And that's just, it's iterating, right? And that's, I don't know, it's empowering. I'm, I'm, I, yeah. It's one of my favorite features of the language. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. People should go watch your talk. If they're new, new to Elixir, new to pattern matching, they should go watch your talk, which is in the show notes. Yeah, thank you so much. I, uh, what, one of the other nice things about iterating, um, so as I mentioned, you know, we, uh, I'd say like our core monolith app, you know, that kind of powers the main learning platform. It's, it's a Rails app. It's you know, a couple of years old at this point, and it is capital M monolith. And it has <laughs> nice. its own. Oh yeah, big time. <laughs> um, and so yeah, the the elixir kind of we're we're kind of pulling extracting stuff out where we can. But like yeah, as I mentioned, this project I'm working on right now, uh, the monolith. You know, we we have a we have a Rails you know Salesforce wrapper. So we we've iterated on that as much as we can. But now that we're implementing an elixir, I can actually see how much more useful it is side by side. Um, that would actually probably be a pretty good blog post um, in and of itself. But yeah, just just this is our next iteration in a different language, and uh, oh my goodness, yeah, we've we've dodged anyway. It's helped us dodge a lot of bullets and just write way more declarative code that we can be confident about operating on. Um, 
yeah, I couldn't be happier that we're, uh, thank God we're doing this in Elixir. So have you seen pattern matching in any other languages? Oh, well, I mean, actually, it's interesting. I did see that there are some, uh, there's some proposals out there for both Ruby and JavaScript, I believe, for, for introducing, you know, uh, proper pattern matching into, into both, both languages. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the Ruby one in particular is interesting. It's the, I don't know how much, how much traction or, you know, activity we have on these, but people seem very into pattern matching, just in general. So. Yeah, I've heard that where people like they they come to Elixir, they kind of start to see pattern matching, and maybe they're not using Elixir with their uh, their company currently. They're like, "Oh, I want this in JavaScript. I want this in Ruby." You know, but it's like really, it's like built into the beam, right? It's been around. It's extremely performant. Kind of bolting it on after the fact. I don't know how successful that'll be. Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm curious to see like if, if either of those proposals move forward. I, I, yeah, completely, completely identify with um, Yeah, I understand why people want it. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it actually gets, uh, gets implemented. There's, there's a conference talk to act, actually that I've, that's been sitting in my um, watch list on, the, on pattern matching in Ruby. Um, yeah, anyway, it's, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, see, see if there's any, anything happening there. Yeah, but the beam was literally made for pattern matching. Like, it's it's not just kind of a little bit in the language. It's like it started off as a prologue thing. Like, that's what you need. Anyway, yeah, totally. Well, and it's, and it's interesting. I think you guys were were talking in a recent episode about kind of introducing like people seeing things in Elixir and trying to introduce it elsewhere. I think the example that came up was like you know trying to make trying to make things trying to make languages like a type language after the fact. Um, or trying to make like even Elixir trying to make it like a fully properly typed language, and it, since it wasn't designed that way in the first place, it's going to be a bit of a struggle. So, yeah, similar. I guess there's there's analogies there for trying to port pattern matching where it wasn't there from day one. Yeah, but the flip side is is that you know somebody implemented it in the first place, and then it got more performant and it, it got more ingrained, and so. If they pull it into Ruby and it turns out to be an extremely useful feature, or into JavaScript, same thing, right? Becomes an extremely useful feature, then they'll optimize it and they'll they'll add it to more things. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think I think my fundamental belief is they won't be able to optimize it anywhere near as as well as it's optimized in general. Well, oh, fair like, enough. Like one of my concerns is like just this whole idea of object oriented programming. You have like I imagine. Like my worst case, like nightmare is like I have pattern matching in Ruby, right? And I match on this object that's coming in, this data structure, this object. And after it gets in, it's inside my function now. That the the I don't know. It pauses at my thread, runs another thread, and then it comes back to me. And that object has been modified while it was away, and now it doesn't actually match, but it's it's in here now. Like that would be like the worst case. Yeah, and I would expect it to be completely valid. Yeah, and that'd be completely yeah. valid. Yeah, and it's like she's, then you have to introduce immutable data structures, and it's like okay, well then it's not Ruby anymore, right? Like it's it's right, right. Yeah, I think uh, because you so eloquently pointed out that pattern matching like is a thing that can bring people over and kind of get them over the gap. I, I think I would I would worry that like if watered down pattern matching gets more widespread, that people won't, you know won't feel that rush of, oh, I can do this thing that I couldn't do somewhere else, but I feel like we'll hit a really much worse local maximum. 
Yeah, interesting. We'll we'll just have to identify that other uh, kind of killer killer feature or whatever that that killer draw is to to bring people in. Yeah, there's still a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything else that we should talk about here with uh, pattern matching or with uh, adopting Elixir? Well, I was I was kind of curious. I, I don't want to I don't want to rush into this too too early. But if if we're on the uh, if we're on the topic of bringing people into the language and something that's going to get them really excited. Uh, I was curious about, this was a conversation that, that came up at, at MPEX a little bit, actually. Um, and folks have, folks have talked about, you know, all these, all these different uh, Ruby and Rails refugees kind of coming over to the Elixir world. One of the, one of the things that we brought up, actually, my, my uh, team lead, Stephen, was talking about this with Dave Thomas, who was the, the keynote. Mm-hmm. The question that they posed, they're like, okay, so, so people are hyped about Elixir. People are hyped about Phoenix. But what's that? What's the thing that's going to bring people in? And specifically, what is Phoenix's fifteen-minute blog? If you remember, like you know the the famous right. you know DHH's Rails video. I, I'd love to hear your guys's love to hear your guys's thoughts on that. I, f- I feel like Live View provides a pretty compelling time to launch that. I mean, just just being straightforward, I think that'll actually bring on a lot of. I think so too, because you re- you really can't do live view in any other language, like at least currently. You know, like you have to have channels as part of the framework. You have to have all these other foundational pieces already in place and already totally performant and solid before you can even introduce the concepts that are being used in live view. So yes, that's that'll be very interesting to see how that could become a recruiting tool. Yeah, um, I mean, if you're if you're really experienced and you're building it sort of yourself from scratch, there's at least what a GraphQL backend and a, and a client to build before you get your first dynamic thing. Yeah, I was going to say... More, that's, that's not going to fit in a 15-minute video. <laughs> no, because you have to learn two technologies. But it is interesting. I mean, you can adopt a front-end and a back-end technology and you can get some of that. And so I think it just depends on where people are coming at. I know a lot of people are very invested in the front-end frameworks, and so they won't see as much of the value. And the, then there are other people who are super invested in the back-end technology and still not wanting to fuss with the front-end. And I think those people are the people that you're going to convert that way. Yes, I, I was talking to a um, coworker about Live View, and you know, there's, it's, it's unreleased at this point, right? So there's a lot that we don't really know. We have to start playing with it before we can actually determine if it is an appropriate tool. But his estimation of like the, the project that he's been working on right now, he, his estimation was that he would have been done in half to a third faster just because it, of, you know, he's dealing on both sides of the front and the back end and you know, dealing with uh, the whole where he's using Vue.js and he's got the whole you know JavaScript pipeline, you know, mm-hmm. it's just all the extra work. And so, you know, I, I I don't know. I think it's an exciting technology. It just does kind of wait to see, kind of wait to try it out. Yeah, I agree. I uh, our team is super super excited about it. One one of the things we're doing right now actually is this uh, kind of this app we've been mainly working on the back end and you know just had server side rendered uh, front end but you know part of part of the business requirements are we we need to you know deliver you know something on the front end with real time updates we're we're going to incorporate you know probably react uh, front end into this thing but 
man, what if we didn't have to set any of that stuff up? Like, what if we had that just out of the box with Phoenix? <clears throat> yeah, people, people are over the moon. So. Oh, absolutely. Well, and yeah, I've been setting things up with Vue.js and Elixir for this particular nice. project. Yeah. And I'm about to pull in Absinthe because I need to start sending data to my front end. And yeah, what if I didn't have to do any of that garbage? It's a pretty good what if. Yeah, but it's still very nice when you do need to do that stuff. Like it's still a nice experience. That's my, my hope is even the people that have no interest in live view whatsoever would at least see it and go, huh, mm. that's a cool thing to have built. I, I want to see how my backend looks there. Yeah, well, the other thing is that I see is that if you really do, do need some killer feature of React or Vue or something else, um, there's no reason why you couldn't build a front-end client that takes advantage of all of the things that you use for the the live view kind of things, except it's more data-focused, I guess, than HTML-focused. Well, server-rendered so, stuff-focused. Especially if you do what is my favorite absent feature, which is the absent Phoenix stuff, and your controllers are basically GraphQL queries. Then, so that's how we built out all of uh, Smooth Terminal, and now pulling, like, actually putting a client on top of it. You've already got all the schema written. And it was trivial, mm -hmm. and you didn't write any controllers, basically. Yep. So anyway, if you if you build it that way, even with live view, then like it sets you up really nicely. Did you already have your GraphQL API just turned it on? Yep. All right. Anything else we should jump on before picks? I think I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's go ahead and do picks then. Mark, do you have some picks for us? I do. In preparing for talking with Kate. It reminded me about how much value we get out of teaching somebody else something. Mm -hmm. And that's value as me. Like, I don't even have to be an expert in something, right? Just the value of taking something that I understand and trying to teach and convey it to someone else. It, there's a lot that comes with that. Like, I get value just because one, I realize maybe I don't understand as well as I thought I did. And two, it's like I start to get other ways of thinking about it and I actually understand it better. So that's one pick. And then another one is a book, um, Thinking of Book Clubs. This is one uh, that I did as a book club with some uh, coworkers. It's Leadership and Self-Deception. It's not a technical book. It's more of a... It's from the Arbinger Inst Institute. And it's about uh, interpersonal relationships uh, in the workplace, but also personal relationships. And I've really enjoyed it. Uh, it just seems to have a lot of ways of taking um, concepts and making them a little bit more concrete so I can actually identify a, a behavior pattern in myself or someone else and be able to adapt better to it. So that's mine. Awesome. Josh, what are your picks? All right. So I have one. Uh, it's ETH Denver, which is an Ethereum hackathon of sorts in Denver. They just announced the, uh, the upcoming one. And yeah, it was really fun last year. Last year was the first one. And I went out there and like stayed in the mountains and talked to a lot of people about um, Ethereum. So it's pretty awesome. Anyway. Um, I'm going to jump in with a couple of, of picks. Um, first of all, yeah, I've been playing with this uh, setup. Um, it's funny because I had never even heard of Brunch before. And I do a JavaScript podcast before I started doing... Uh, um, Elixir and Phoenix. And it's it's been kind of fun to just dive in and go, okay, what am I dealing with here? And uh, figure out how to get this stuff in. 
there's a really great uh, series of blog posts. They were written in 2017, and they just walk you through setting up Vue.js with Brunch and um, Phoenix. And yeah, really, it, it's been really helpful, even though it's a year or three old. Uh, so anyway, um, I'm going to link to that in the show notes. And then, um, yeah, I've been listening to a book called Scale. And um, it, it's actually very much in line with my business coach who's been helping me kind of uh, get uh, devchat.tv up to the next level. So um, I, I've really been enjoying that and just kind of focusing in on what I'm going to be doing. So yeah, I'm going to pick that as well. Um, and yeah, those are my picks. Kate, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I'll throw a couple of them out there. Uh, so the first one is uh, kind of technical. We, we talked a lot today about, you know, folks who are first starting out um, and the benefits of kind of, you know, teaching other folks as you're, as you're getting out there. So I wanted to shout out uh, one of my teammates, Sophie DiBenedetto, who has started a new website and newsletter. It's called Break In. Uh, it's breakin.tech. Which is awesome. It's 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 totally geared towards folks who are looking for or starting their first developer job. Um, just totally awesome resource. And we're always looking for. Uh, she's looking for contributors. She's looking for uh, uh, folks who want to kind of contribute advice. So either if you're looking or if you have been on the other side of that, uh, it's a great resource for everybody. For a, a non-technical pick, I wanted to shout. I saw an awesome documentary this weekend. Before uh, my my first career, before changing careers into into tech, I was actually working in the fine art world. And one of my favorite artists, and she's absolutely phenomenal, uh, Yayoi Kusama. She does paintings, sculptures, uh, and there's this incredible documentary out there called Kusama Infinity, uh, which just kind of tracks her. Her life is crazy. Like she was hanging out with, uh, she was part of like Warhol's group and like showing alongside these folks, and then she kind of fell off the map, disappeared for 20 years, came back, was rediscovered, and now she's the highest grossing, best-selling you know, female artist in the world. And her stuff is utterly incredible. She's incredible. Couldn't recommend that, that documentary enough. So, Awesome. Kate, where do people find you online if they want to follow you on Twitter or read more blog posts? Sure. Um, I'm at KT Travers uh, on Twitter. I'm at K Travers on GitHub. Yes, that's very annoying for the K Travers who's squatting on that Twitter username. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm, I'm blogging alongside the, the rest of my team at flatironlabs.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and talking to us. This has been really just fun to dive into and see what's going on over there at Flatiron School. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. All right, folks, we're going to wrap this one up. We will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.